You're listening to the Eastside Baptist Church Sermon Podcast. This sermon was recently preached at our church. We want to encourage you to visit our website at eastsidesf.com. Now, enjoy today's sermon. James 1. It's been a while since we've been in the book of James. You may not even remember we started the book of James a while back. And uh, we had, you know, we started it, and then we had missions emphasis, and then we just had some guest speakers. And but now we're back; we're ready to get back to it. And I'm going to start though tonight with a summary on some of the things that we've already looked at. And and let me just say this: the longer I pastor, the less apologetic I am about review. And uh, you, I mean, I, it's been I've had a little criticism sometimes about. How, uh, you know, going back over things. No, listen, we need to be reminded. And it is hard to remember what was preached this morning, much less a month ago. And, uh, you know, Peter said this way, he was writing to them to stir them, uh, stir up your pure minds by way of remembrance, he said. So it's very biblical. I don't know about you, but it's easy for me to forget. And uh, and so we'll, we'll do some review tonight, but I, then I also want to, come at it from a different angle and then bring it together uh, with a different truth, a different principle. And, I, and then we'll, we'll go over some new ideas tonight as well. So let's stand together. James chapter 1, we'll begin reading in verse number 1 and read down through verse 8. James, a servant of God and the Lord Jesus Christ, to the twelve tribes which are scattered abroad, greeting. My brethren, count it all joy when you fall into divers temptations. Think about the song we just heard. When you fall into divers temptations, knowing this, that the trying of your faith worketh patience. But let patience have her perfect work, that ye may be perfect and entire, wanting nothing. If any of you lack wisdom, and this is where our focus will be tonight. If any of you lack wisdom, let him ask of God. That giveth to all men liberally, and upbraideth not, and it shall be given him. But let him ask in faith, nothing wavering. For he that wavereth is like a wave of the sea, driven with the wind and tossed. For let not that man think that he shall receive anything of the Lord. That's a sobering verse, isn't it? Let not that man think he shall receive, that he shall receive anything of the Lord. A double-minded man... ...is unstable in all his ways. Uh, The message tonight um, that I'm titling it this... ...be a student, not a victim. Be a student, not a victim. Because we tend to play the victim role well... ...and we miss the lessons that we were supposed to learn through the trial. So be a student, not a victim. Let's pray. Father, thank you for the truth. I pray that you bless the reading of your word. Open our, our, our hearts and our minds to what you have for us, Lord. We love you in Jesus' name. Amen. Thank you. You may be seated. The book of James has been called a practical guide to the Christian life and conduct. Uh, some say that it's the Proverbs of the New Testament. It's full of short commands or imperatives, straightforward commands. It was written by James, the half-brother of Jesus... ...who was, by the way, not a name dropper. Uh, And we've talked about these things, this is review... ...but he could have boasted about being the pastor of the church at Jerusalem. 
He could have boasted about being the half-brother of Jesus and he could have boasted about being the, the son of Mary, but he refers to himself as servant. James, a servant of the Lord Jesus Christ. It's a, it's a book uh, uh, for believers. It's specifically written for the Messianic Jews who'd been scattered abroad. These believers had been scattered due to persecution, but it applies to every one of us. It is applicable to our lives. This letter was written to believers that are still growing in the Lord, believers who haven't reached the peak of maturity yet. And I think that applies to at least some of us in here tonight. That we haven't reached the peak of maturity, I think that actually applies to every one of us. We're in Wearsby states that James was, was writing in response to the problem of spiritual immaturity. And the, the word that James uses over and over again in this book is the word perfect. Not perfect as in sinless, but perfect as in completeness. Perfect as in maturity, brought to its end or finished. And every child of God ought to strive to be perfect in the sense of being complete. Not sinless, but mature. But in order to be perfect, James has to deal with many problems they were facing. And he talks about things like temptations and trials here in chapter 1. He talks about learning how to treat all people the same in chapter 2. He talks about dealing with jealousy and dealing with envy in chapter 3 and keeping your tongue under control. So thankful we've all mastered that one there. And we don't need chapter 3 because our tongue is completely under control. He talks about problems like how to keep yourself from worldliness. He talks about obeying God and dealing with, even dealing with health problems in chapter 5. And there are a lot of other detailed issues. But the point that James makes is every one of these problems has a way of revealing our level of, of maturity. They, they reveal who we are. When you face problems, it reveals. I think about the last couple of years, year and a half to two years, and, and COVID-19 has revealed a lot. It's revealed a lot about people. I mean, I was praying through the church directory just this week and, and reminded of some of the families that we, that we haven't seen back since COVID. And, it's, and it's, it's sad, it's disheartening. I'm thankful that it's not a large number, but it's there. And COVID revealed, it revealed who, you know, where people were and how committed people were. And there's been fear and dismay and resistance to return and resistance uh, to shake hands and anger over how things were done and how things were not done. I'm telling you, it's been revealing the last couple of years. Problems are revealers. Tests reveal what we know. They reveal who we are. Tough circumstances expose us, like placing a, a tea bag in boiling water. The contents inside the tea bag come out in the heat. The tests reveal what's on the inside. You know, and if you fail one test, that may have just been a bad day. It may have just been your state of mind. It, it, everyone has a bad day. If you re if you fail two tests. You start to notice a pattern. If you reveal, if you uh, fail three or four tests, you know it's that's revealing what you are. It reveal it reveals how hard you've studied or what you what you need to work on. The concept that we're working with in James is this: faith works, meaning that your faith. Will, will be worked out one way or the other. It will be evident one way or the other. If you have genuine faith, it will be revealed in the tests of life. 
like a tree or a plant. We've had things spring up in our garden and we don't know exactly what it is. But once it starts bearing fruit, we know exactly what it is. Well, those are tomatoes. Uh, those are jalapenos, or that's a habanero, whatever it is. Anything that goes in salsa, we're all about it, you know. Last time we looked at chapter 1, which, which deals with the test of perseverance and suffering. You know, no one likes to suffer. Least of all Americans. You know, we think we know what it is to suffer, but we haven't been to Africa. We haven't lived there. We haven't seen what people in third world countries, what they live like. Uh, we, you know, we get all bothered at people who throw a fit or riot about things that they don't like when they think they're suffering and things don't go their way. But it's not like we love to be afflicted. Uh, what would, re what it re would it reveal about us if we didn't have heat in this building, building tonight? You say, well, based on the temperature, I don't know that we do have heat. <laughs> what would it reveal about us if we had no pews? And we had to come and sit down on the natural cushions that God gave us. We act like eating the same thing for lunch two days in a row is hard. But can you imagine not having lunch two days in a row? Uh, we don't like suffering. It reveals something about us. And our spirit, when things aren't easy, starts to reveal what's going on on the inside. And James gives some great instruction in the first part of the book about how to respond to suffering. And the reason it matters is because suffering doesn't have to destroy us. Suffering doesn't have to hurt us. As a matter of fact, James says that suffering does something beneficial for us. I hope you were listening to the song Tina just sang. In verse 3, the way James says it here is that the trying of your faith worketh patience. In verse 4, but let patience have her perfect work. Perfect is maturity. There's something about trials that transforms us. It, it changes us. Troubles and trials are, are allowed because God uses them to do something in us or with us. And, and the way that I heard one preacher say it is this. When hard times come, be a student, not a victim. See, too many people have a victim mentality about everything. You know people like that. I mean, if something's hard for them, everyone knows about it. If something's hard for them, it's got, it, their, their heart is harder than your heart. And they're, they're the victim mentality that, and yes, sure, times can be hard, but they're hard for everybody. And a victim mentality plays the role, but students learn. Victims are victims, but students learn from the difficulty. The, the, the word that James uses is temptations, and that can refer to trials or troubles or stress. And small things can be temptations. I mean, little things like waiting in line or missing a bill that you needed to pay or a flat tire or someone sitting in your seat at church. Never mind, that's a big temptation. We'll, we'll move that to the other list. Job loss, the breakdown of a relationship. Money problems, health problems, loss of life. As hard as suffering is, though, God can use it to mature us. And I'm not lessening your temptation. I'm not lessening or cheapening your test or your trial. Temptations put our faith on trial and it's not easy. They test our faith to see where we are and to take us to a different level. And we need to choose to stay under the heat. Uh, don't escape the process because it's through the process that God teaches and transforms us. The tests teach and transform. And victims are going to miss that lesson, but students won't. Right. 
So we need a strategy when we face a test. And we, we looked at this last time, a, a formula almost to follow to make sure that the tests aren't wasted because trials will happen. They're not if, they're when. They're a part of life. And we don't choose trials. We, we don't choose the size of the trial. We don't choose the nature of the trial. But what we can do, or what we, what we can't do, is refuse to learn how to take a test. Because if we refuse how to learn how to take a test, we are going to miss what we were supposed to learn. We're going to miss the growth. We must choose to be students, not victims. So how does a good student approach a test? Well, first in verse 2, they count it all joy. Count. My brethren, count it all joy when you fall into diverse temptations. That means we look ahead and we consider what God is doing to grow us. And that, now you say, well, that doesn't help me. It's still hard. I mean, I get it. But can you imagine facing a trial and having no hope that anything good can come from it? I mean, as difficult as life can be, can you imagine having no context for it? Friedrich Nietzsche said, uh, he who has a why to live can bear with almost anyhow. He who has a why to live can bear with almost anyhow. And the idea is if we trust that God is working, we can face about anything. We are commanded to count it all joy. Flat tire, joy. This is a fake smile, by the way. I'm just thinking about a flat tire and I'm not happy. Disappointment, joy. Something doesn't go right, joy. You know, just this last week I was reminded of this. Uh, we, we were in Amarillo, Texas and we were supposed to fly to Dallas and it was cheaper for us to fly through Oklahoma City and stay the night and then fly out the next day. And there's somebody in Oklahoma City that we wanted to see, our daughter. So we thought, let's do it. So on Monday morning, we were sitting on the plane in Amarillo, and, and suddenly you hear everything, you know, everything's kind of ramping up, and then you hear everything in the plane start ramping back down. And right, that, that, the, everyone's mood went a lot, right along with the ramping up and then the ramping down, because you knew something was wrong. And they come over the speaker and say, there's something wrong with the plane, uh, there's, there's some part, and I don't even know exactly what it was, but they start, they say, we're going to try to get this fixed and then we'll be hit, you know, we'll be on our way. So after a while of, of sitting there, they come back on and basically say it's a bigger problem than we realized. It's going to take longer than we realized. And in our minds, we had to go through Dallas and then catch a, a, a connecting flight to Oklahoma City. So in our minds, we have about an hour and a half window. That's it. Well, after about an hour sitting on the plane... We start realizing we're probably going to miss our connection to Oklahoma City. And you know what this dad was thinking? Every minute that was ticking by, I'm thinking that's one less minute with my daughter. Because they had one afternoon. I mean, just, just an afternoon to spend a little time. She had taken off work. She knew we were coming in. We just wanted to get some time with her. You just need it sometimes. So we, you know, we're sitting on the plane, we're realizing our, our connecting flight, we're not going to make that at this point, because if you've been to Dallas-Fort Worth, if you've flown through there, then you know it's, it, it's a maze, and you have to get on a train every time, and there are these different terminals, and the one rule that should be in scripture is you'll never land in the same terminal from which you're flying out. 
you will always have to get on the tram and take the tram around from Dallas down to Houston and Corpus Christi and, the, and then back before you get on your next, in your next terminal. And that's exactly what was happening. We're watching the app and it, sure enough it says, you know, we're landing in terminal D but our flight is going out of terminal B. And we have a 10 minute window at this point and there's just no way you can make it from where we were going to be to where we were going. So you know what this dad's heart started doing? Count it all joy. <laughs> you know? And I'm sitting there just... And I'm getting, the, the Christian word for anger is frustrated. I'm getting frustrated. <laughs> Not angry, frustrated. And just thinking about, you know, missing it. And the, the next connecting flight is a few hours later, which is a few hours we're going to miss in Oklahoma City. And we're going to miss the time. And we had, we had arranged it and it worked out perfectly. And yet here it is. And, you know, we weren't the only ones getting angry. The people around us were too. So we get in the air and we're flying toward Dallas and, and about 15 minutes left before we land, they allow a couple of guys from the back of the plane to go up to the front of the plane where there are empty seats because those are the guys that need to catch their connections. And so just out of a gesture of kindness, they let them move from the back to the front so they can get out real quick and there's a chance they can make their connection. Well, that's not going to fly, no, no pun intended, that is not flying with anybody else on the plane. Because they're like, well, we have connections too. And they're getting angry and they're getting mad, you know, that they're the ones, they, that they don't get to go up front uh, and be there for the connecting flight. And they're just getting angry and you hear the, the, the chippiness going on and, and, uh, and, and you hear the, the anger start to kind of mount up in people. And, and it was, you know, I wasn't yelling, but I was frustrated. I, was, I, was, I wasn't happy that we were going to miss it. But you know the way the Lord works these things out. Um, come to find out that we were on the plane. They had cha they changed it. We were on the plane that was going to end up being the one they flew out to Oklahoma City. And I figured our chances of making that flight were pretty good. Because <laughs> we were literally on the plane that was going to end up going to Oklahoma City. And all we had to do was step off. For some reason, they make you get off. We had to step off and step right back on and we were able to make our connecting flight. You know, that's the way the Lord works. But you know what I was thinking afterwards when he answered that prayer that I wasn't really asking for in a good spirit? Is I was frustrated and the Lord smote me because he was reminding me, even if things had fallen through, he was still in control. And in a trial, I say a trial, a temptation, something small like that, Boy, if something small can get us worked up, well, how about the big things? You know, and you have to stop in the middle of those things and count it all joy. Count it joy that God can take that temptation you're facing in that moment and he can make you better for it. I don't know how, I don't understand it, and I don't always like it, but it's true. So he says count it, and then he also says no in verse 3. Knowing this, that the trying of your faith worketh patience. In a, in a test, a good student will count. A good student will also know that, that we need to have an understanding mind. That, that, that the trying of our faith changes us. It transforms us. Because if you let emotions lead the way, then, then you will get to a point where it doesn't matter what truth is. Your emotions are leading the way. But he says in the middle of a temptation, know this. 
Let the trying of your faith work in patience. Stop operating based on your emotions. Stop operating based on how you feel and operate based on what you know. It's easy to let emotions cause us to forget that, it, that, that in the middle of, uh, of a trial or in a middle, the middle of a trial, we forget uh, that God can use it to help us, that God can use it to grow us. Our emotions cloud our judgment and pressure clouds our logic. It clouds our reasoning. So you must force yourself to take time to be reminded and just know God's working. So he says, count it all joy and know this. And then he says, the next word is let in verse 4. But let patience have her perfect work that you may be perfect and entire wanting nothing. And the word let implies surrender. You have to let something happen. You have to cooperate with God. God doesn't work in our hearts without permission. And he doesn't force it on us. We have to say, God, I let you. I submit to you. I surrender. And you, you have to submit your will to the one who actually has knowledge and power and can actually help you through in, in this trial to change and transform you. Let God work in you in the trial. Let him. Count it all joy. Know that the trying of your faith worketh patience and let him have his way. Just let him do it. Surrender. And then the last word that he uses is ask. If any of you lack wisdom, let him ask of God. In trouble, what should you pray about? Well, a lot of people pray for deliverance. A lot of people pray for strength. A lot of people pray for help. A lot of people pray for another alternative. A lot of people pray for a removal of the trial. But you know what James says? He says, ask for wisdom. That seems a little strange, but it does make sense in that... We should ask for wisdom not to waste the test. Someone said that knowledge is the accumulation of, of facts and wisdom is the ability to use the facts in a practical way. And when I was a kid, I used to be obsessed with trivial facts and trivia. And I don't know why every year for Christmas, my parents, because I was a nerd, they would get me a world almanac, book of facts. And I would just read it. I don't know why. I was, it was strange. And, and I thought it was useless until my fifth grade year, I, I, I tried out for the spelling bee and I won the school spelling bee. And then after that, I won the city and then I went to the state, the, the, the regional and I went to state. And I didn't win state that year, but I, was, I looked at my parents and was like, see all the useless facts, not so useless anymore, huh? I'm a spelling bee guy now. And a couple years later, I won the state spelling bee. Two years in a row, I got to go to Washington, D.C., and, you know, that, that it, it was one thing to have the, the useless facts. But when I was able to put them to use, that's the difference between knowledge and wisdom. And a lot of us are, we have knowledge. But in the middle of a test, that knowledge just flies out the window. And it's like we don't know how to apply what we know. Instead of, instead of well, in church... This is how it is, and it's, this is how it is for all of us. In church, we say, bless God and amen, and I believe everything you're saying. But when the test actually comes, if you're one of those kind of test takers, you know, you've studied and you know, but when the test comes, you know, all of your knowledge just kind of drains out of your ears and you don't remember anything. Yeah. That's kind of how it is in life. We have knowledge, but, uh, do we need, but we need wisdom. And God says, let him ask. If you, if you need, if you will ask for my wisdom, 
that is the proper application of knowledge. And we should request for wisdom and ask God for wisdom. Because, and if we don't, then we'll, if we don't respond to the trial with God's wisdom, the test will be wasted. So he says count, and he says no, and he says let, and he says ask. That's the right response to a test. But I, I, don't, I don't want to stop there tonight because as I was studying this this week, I realized there's a lot more instruction given to asking than there is to counting and knowing and letting. So I want to spend some time on focusing on this element of asking God for wisdom in our trials. See, in a test, the best students realize that asking for God's wisdom is the most important thing. Turn over to James chapter 3, since we're talking about wisdom, and there's probably not a better, a better differentiation between our wisdom and God's wisdom than what James himself wrote about in James chapter 3. And he gives us two types of wisdom here. Let's start reading in verse 13. He says, who is a wise man and endued with knowledge among you? Let him show out of a good conversation his works with meekness of wisdom. So he starts with this, this verse in 13. He says, who's a wise man? Uh, who is endued or blessed with knowledge among you? And, and I think that probably refers to those that had experience in in the church, those with those that were possibly teachers in the church, those that had wisdom, those that had knowledge. He says, okay, who are the wise ones? Who are the ones endued with knowledge? Who are the ones um, that, that have experience? And, and who are the ones that have these things? Well, here's the ones that have wisdom and knowledge. He says, let him show out of a good conversation his works with meekness of wisdom. He says, here's the ones, because you're going to have some that claim to be wise. And you'll have some that claim to have knowledge. But James says the ones that really have knowledge and the ones that really have wisdom will reveal it through their conversation. And by the way, their conversation is not talking about their words. It's talking about the way they live. Their behavior. So you, he, what he's saying is, you want to know who's wise? You want to know who has knowledge among you? The ones that reveal it through their works. The ones that show it in the way that they live, in their actions. Those are the ones with wisdom. Those are the ones with faith. And then he even closes the, that verse with this phrase. The, he, Let him show out of a good conversation his works with meekness of wisdom. So it's not just what you do. It's also a spirit that you have. You want to know the ones that truly have wisdom... And truly have knowledge at Eastside Baptist Church. It's not just the ones that say they've been saved for a long time. It's not just the ones that claim to have maturity. It's the ones that through their actions and their spirit reveal it. It's not, about a, it's not a claim of, of, of experience. It's not a claim of being saved for 40 or 50 years. Your wisdom, your wisdom, godly wisdom is revealed when there's pressure and yet your actions and your spirit remain godly. That's what he says. And then he says, but if, but, he says there's this, but there's a certain kind of wisdom here. It's called earthly wisdom. And here's what earthly wisdom looks like. It says, if ye have bitter envying and strife in your hearts, glory not and lie not against the truth. This wisdom descendeth not from above, but is earthly, sensual devilish listen when there is pressure and there is trouble and there's a test 
and you face temptations, someone operating out of earthly wisdom will exhibit these traits. They'll have bitterness. They'll have envy. They'll have strife in their hearts. Someone with a critical, contentious, fight-provoking manner is operating out of earthly wisdom. A spirit of envy and rivalry reflects sensual, earthly, devilish wisdom. And Paul and James says, glory not. Lie not against the truth. What he's saying is, don't act as if you're operating in God's wisdom if that's your spirit. That's earthly, sensual, devilish wisdom. It's fleshly. He goes as far to say it's demonic. If that's how you operate when, it's, when there's pressure, if that's how you operate when there's a test, then, then, it, then it causes chaos. He says in verse 16, uh, for where envying and strife is, there is confusion and every evil work, disorder, chaos. It's evil. And if you try to face your test with your wisdom, that's how you will operate. If under the pressure, uh, when, when pressure is on and you are operating under earthly wisdom, your response will be bitterness and envy and strife in your hearts. It will reflect a sensual, fleshly, devilish wisdom. That's how we operate when we're operating under earthly wisdom. But look at the difference between earthly wisdom and God's wisdom. In verse 17, but the wisdom that is from above is first pure. And the word pure means without sin. It means clean. He says it's first pure. He says it is peaceable. It means it seeks peace, not confusion or fights. You know, somebody that's operating out of earthly wisdom will seek a fight. Someone operating out of God's wisdom will defer so that there's peace. He says first it's pure, then it's peaceable, and then he says it's gentle. There's a certain spirit of gentleness with somebody that has godly wisdom. A certain amount of humility in the way they talk to people and they deal with people. Gentleness, he says. He says easy to be entreated, and that means that they're willing to yield. They're compliant. If you operate out of earthly wisdom, then you won't budge in the ministry you've been doing for so long and the way that you do it for so long. But if you have God's wisdom that you're operating out of and things don't go exactly the way that you think they should, you, you won't, you'll be willing to be compliant. Easily entreated, the Bible says. And I'm not saying that you become a doormat, but listen, there are some battles that aren't just, just aren't worth fighting in the Lord's work. And if someone just refuses to be compliant, they are not operating out of God's wisdom. I'm just giving you what the Bible says. Easy to be entreated, full of mercy. You know, not jumping to harsh conclusions about people. Uh, giving people the same room that you want somebody to give you. Full of mercy, full of good fruits. That's the works that we talked about. Without partiality, without judgment, without hypocrisy. The God, somebody in God's wisdom doesn't pretend to be something that they're not. And he says in verse 18, and the fruit of righteousness is sown in the peace of them that make peace. And if you are operating, if we are operating in God's wisdom, then peace is the primary word of the day. We have peace. So in a test, let me just, we're, we're, we'll start to wrap it up here, but I just don't want you to miss it. In a test, we can either approach the difficulty in our wisdom or in God's. So you tell me, according to this this passage, which one is better? Earthly wisdom or God's wisdom? Go back to James 1. And here's why it's critical. 
that you ask for God's wisdom in your trials. Well, what we just looked at, here's why it's critical, listen. Here's why it's critical that you ask for God's wisdom in a trial. Because if you don't, earthly wisdom takes over and it's not a pretty picture. I'll say that again. Here's why you need God's wisdom in a trial. Because if you don't ask God for his wisdom, you'll resort to earthly wisdom. And your response in earthly wisdom is bitter envying. Strife, lying against the truth. The words are earthly, sensual, devilish, confusion, every evil work. Listen, pressure has a way of revealing the worst in us. If you've ever tried to minister to somebody who's just faced a massive loss in their lives, in those moments they tend to lash out. In operating in earthly wisdom when there's pressure, I'm telling you, you will not like what it reveals. That's every one of us. And listen, I'm not pointing fingers. I'm saying that's every single one of us. When we face tests without God, if we approach a trial in our wisdom, we won't like how we act. We won't like what it reveals. If you've ever been in a pressure-filled situation and you responded poorly or you responded with a bad spirit, I'm telling you, it's just full of regret. And I've done it too. Operating out of earthly wisdom means that you have all these regrets about how you act when the pressure is on. And you can pretend to be above it and say, well, that's not my problem. But James clearly says doing things in our wisdom will reveal that side of us. So that's the first reason that you need to ask for God, ask God for wisdom in a trial is because if earthly wisdom takes over, it's a, it's a bad picture. But second, if we don't ask God for wisdom in our trial, then we will be driven by the circumstances instead of faith. If you are going to try to do this on your own, verse 6, he says, Let him ask in faith, nothing wavering, for he that wavereth is like a wave of the sea driven with the wind and tossed. See, the idea is this, trials are like the waves of the sea. And the trials, they just rock us and they knock us back and forth and up and down. And if you've ever been on a boat for any length of time, you feel that, just that rocking back. Hopefully nobody in here is really too seasick or, uh, you know, because... You just go back and forth. My wife and I went on a, a cruise one time and it took us a couple days just to get used to it. Can you feel it? You get nauseous in here. Well, that's what trials do to you. Because trials aren't consistent. They just, they just beat on you. The wind blows. The trial just beats you up. If you've ever faced a test, that's what it feels like. That you're not the one in charge. Uh, the test is, is just the one rocking you back and forth. It carries you around and it's like a ship without a sail. And too many of God's people, when faced with a trial, we allow the trial to be in charge. We allow it to knock us back and forth. And, and we think, well, I know I need to ask God for wisdom, but I just don't. This thing is so big. I'm just not sure that, that that's going to help anything. So you go back and forth. And there are times where you ask because you know you need God's help. But then a wave comes and you forget that you're supposed to be asking for God's wisdom. And you try to do it on your own again. And if you focus on the trial, the trial's in charge. The current condition of the trial will be reflected in your spirit. You know, if things are up, you'll be happy. But if things are down, you'll be down. And it'll be reflected in your words, in your actions. Your emotions will reflect the changing conditions of the trial. And focusing on God, though, gives us a sense of peace and calm. Because he never changes. And he's always the same. And that's the idea. If you are facing a trial without God's help and without asking for God's wisdom, the Bible says you won't have his help. 
No ask, no help. And that's sobering. And not only that, if you look at the effect in verse 8, a double-minded man is unstable in all his ways. You see, if you waver in asking for God's wisdom, there won't be one area of your life that is settled. There won't be one thing in your life where there's peace. You'll be unstable in every way because where you're looking determines how strongly you stand. And if you're looking at the trial, you'll be wobbly and you'll be unstable. But if you're looking at God, it does something to establish us in the middle of that rocking back and forth. You, you know you need to view things from God's perspective. But here comes another wave. You know you need to count and you need to let and you need to, and all, and you need to know and, and you need to ask. But man, here's another wave and the, there's another wave and you can't even, you don't even have time to catch your breath. You know, the bigger the waves, the worse your attitude then. That's what earthly wisdom does, folks. See, it reveals the worst of us. And the harder the trial, the more bitter envying and contention. Because you're just being knocked around. And you're just responding to how things feel in the moment. You lash out. The tougher the test, the more critical your spirit. The angrier you get. That's the result of earthly wisdom. We need to ask God for his wisdom in a trial um, because if we don't, we won't like what we see. And then if we don't, we'll also then be driven by our circumstances instead of faith. But here's another reason to ask God for wisdom in a trial. Is because God wants to give it to you. He gives liberally. Abundantly. Generously. Overflowingly. And it says he upbraideth not. And to upbraid is he doesn't reprimand us or make us feel guilty if, he asks, if we ask for wisdom. And there are times as a dad and just to, just to bear my heart about the regret or feelings of guilt I have. There are times when I'm busy and my children will come and ask me for something. And, I, and I'm short with them or I give them a harsh answer. And all they were doing is what I do with God sometimes, just asking dad for help. But because I'm busy, I kind of turn them away or I make them feel guilty for asking in the moment. You know, God's never done that. Amen. He upbraideth not. Yes. He never makes you feel guilty if you want his help. He, he's never once turned a child away that needed him in the moment. And my question is, so a God like that, why wouldn't you ask him for his wisdom? Lord, I need your wisdom to respond correctly to this test. And Lord, I, I need you to remind me that your wisdom is bigger than the next wave. Lord, I need, to, I need you to help me not to lash out at that person because they're not really my biggest problem. My biggest problem is not asking you for wisdom. If we don't ask God for his wisdom, we won't like what we see and what earthly wisdom takes over. We won't like that. And if we don't ask God for his wisdom, then we'll be driven by circumstances instead of a trial. If we don't ask God for wisdom, then we miss out on what he wants to give us. Listen, it is critical that you ask God for wisdom in your trials. If you try to face a test without it, the worst parts of you will be revealed. And the circumstances will drive you instead of faith. Here's the challenge that I want to give you tonight. If you face your tests without God's wisdom, you'll be a victim instead of a student. You'll be a victim instead of a student. If you want to remain a victim in every trial, just do it on your own. That's fine. 
Just, just trust your wisdom. But if you want to be a student and you want to learn and grow in the test, then every question on the test means that you bow your, heart, your, your head and your heart before God and you ask him for wisdom what to do on this test or this question. Another question comes, God, what, 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 what do I do? Another question comes, Lord, help me. I've taken tests like that in school where every question I needed God's divine intervention and supernatural power. Well, that's, that's the way we should approach life's tests. And I'm just asking tonight, which one are you going to be? Are you going to be a victim and miss the test, miss the growth? Or are you going to be a, vic- a student and say, no, I will grow because I will choose to learn everything God wants to teach me? What does your response to your test reveal about what kind of wisdom you're following? In your test, if you're lashing out, if you're bitter, if you're envious, if you're angry, if there's confusion in every evil work and, and, and you're just kind of operating based on feel and, and it's up and down and it's back and forth, then I can tell you probably your, your, your wisdom is being revealed in your works. Earthly wisdom. But if you're calm and you're gentle and you're trusting God and you have a certain peace, then you're probably operating based on God's wisdom. The problem is that's not usually our natural response. Are you in a test in which you've been grumbling and complaining and exhibiting traits of earthly wisdom? Let your response drive you to ask God for wisdom. Do you need to stop trying to face the test in your wisdom and get into the practice of asking God for his be a student, not a victim. I'm thankful. I look around the room. I'm thankful for those that have been students instead of victims. I'm thankful for I'm thankful for Mallory back there. You know, I, I, I'm just thankful that she, for the last about 10 or 11 months, in my opinion, there are probably times where you wanted to be the victim. In moments of emotion. But for the most part, Josh and Mallory Hash, probably old enough to be their dad. I think I am. They've taught me how to be a student, not a victim. I'm thankful the Johnsons are here tonight. You know, two and a half years ago, my first, I mean, I drove into Sioux Falls and went straight to the hospital to be with them and didn't have any, I mean, I still, only by God's grace, you know, do you have any words or help for people? Brother Ruckman was there. And you don't know what to say, but through all of that, I saw a family that chose to be students instead of victims. And they've responded not by bitter envy and, and just spite and confusion. and No, they responded by saying, you know, if God wanted this, then we're going to learn from it. I look around the room and I know people that have lost their, their, a spouse. And, and you chose to be students and not victims. Thank you for the example. I'm thankful for the Ruckmans and with Micaiah and all of his health things. And they chose to be students, not victims. But I also know in this moment, right now, People facing a major test. Big. Hard. 
And in my heart, this pastor's heart, I'm thinking, Lord, help them to respond like students and not victims. Help them in every decision along the way where they want to just throw in the towel to stop and ask you for help. Ask you for wisdom and how to deal with it because they can't get rid of it. You can't make it go away, but you can respond correctly at every question. I look around the room, I'm just thankful that we have a church full of people that have chosen to be students instead of victims. But listen, your, your test is coming. You won't miss it. You don't get to choose whether or not you take it. It's not if, it's when. So my prayer is when your test comes, you might be saying tonight, well, this message is great for somebody else. It doesn't really apply to me. No, when your test comes, my prayer is that you'll remember this message and you'll choose student over victim. Learn what you can. Let God transform you through the test. And just let him do whatever it is he's going to do. I don't even understand what he does or how he does it. I just know I'd, be, I'd much rather respond with God's wisdom than my own earthly wisdom. Because I've seen what it's like in my earthly wisdom. And I can tell you it's not pretty. So I'm just going to lean on God. And instead of being a victim, I'm choosing to be a student. Let's stand together. Every head bowed, every eye closed. Give you an opportunity to respond tonight. Is there a test that you've been facing that you haven't responded very well to? And maybe you need to just kind of repent tonight of, of trying in a test or in pressure, trying to respond in your wisdom and it's just backfired on you. Maybe tonight is the time that you come and you just say, God, I've not doing this, been doing this the right way. I need you. And maybe um, you've been in a test and you've been grumbling and complaining and it's exhibited traits of earthly wisdom and you need to come and get that right. Or maybe you, your test has revealed some things about you that you don't really like. Well, just stop being a victim and become a student. I don't know what you're facing, but I do know this, that we all face tests and they're all bigger than we are, but we have a God who's bigger than the tests. And he can transform us through the test. I pray that we'll be submissive to let him have his way through the tests. Father, thank you for your word. I pray that you bless it tonight. Help our response to be pleasing to you. In Jesus' name, amen. We want to encourage you to visit our website at eastsidesf.com.